main activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. What's up? What's up? Welcome to the Eerie Americas. I'm one of your hosts, Christy Holt. And this is Vicky Ayala. And we are coming off a very crazy Labor Day weekend. I hope everyone had a good time. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I did something fun, but not really fun. How about you? I did what I do every year, um, the first week of September, which is decorate my apartment for Halloween. I actually started the day before. There's a 12 foot skeleton that Home Depot sells that I've wanted, but Mm -hmm. I live in an apartment in Brooklyn. So obviously I don't have 12 foot ceilings. Don't ask me why. I just wanted like a huge ass skeleton in my apartment. But then I went and I found one that's five feet. And I was like, okay, that's around, that's a little bit shorter than me. I'm five, three. I was like, all right, that's a good enough size, I guess. The end of August, I was just walking around with a five foot skeleton all day. And I just like, you had to see me walking through my apartment complex and everybody, and it's literally 90 something degrees outside. Everybody's looking at me like it's 90 degrees outside. And the only people that appreciated it were the other Halloween fans. Well, there was one of my, the ladies in my complex is like, oh my God, I can start decorating now too. And so I brought it upstairs and I was just waiting for Ryan to tell me we're getting divorced because he was, he's just like so sick of my shit already (laughs) when it comes to decorating. And he was like, oh, cool. Where are you going to put it? So like I positioned it leaning up against a table, holding a cauldron full of candy. And then Ryan puts like one of his like slipknot masks on it. And like his train conductor hat and it looks really cool. But I was like, well, I spent $50 on it. I'm just going to leave it up all year and just dress it up for different holidays. So like I'm just going to smack a Santa hat on it and call it Christmas. And I'll put like something green on it during St. Patty's Day. And I'll probably put a thong on it during Valentine's Day. And I'm just such a you thing to do because it's like, you know how some people never take down their Christmas lights? You would not take down a Halloween I'm not taking so. down a skeleton. So not a five foot one because I actually don't have, I don't even have anywhere else to put it. But the funny thing is that I've been trying to prank Ryan with it, but he keeps on going to sleep at the same time as me. So what I'm thinking of doing is moving the skeleton into the shower so that when he goes to take a shower that morning, it's in there. That would be hilarious. But I was like, damn it, I won't get to record it. But I will play the voice note that he is going to send me yelling at me after I do it. But like, I yes. I have gotten ideas from people. They're like, oh my God, you should do this. So like, I'm going to put him in the shower. I'm probably going to put him on the toilet with a newspaper one day for Ryan to walk in on. Just this is what happens when you're an adult and you have access to your own money is you do shit like buy a skeleton and prank your husband with it. I mean, if you're us, sure. I ended up working. And, uh, I worked an event and it was the Fish concert. So for people that might not know who Fish is, it's spelled P-H-I-S-H. And um, they're kind of like a Grateful Dead band. It's interesting things happen. As fun as it is and as crazy and trippy as it is, it's also very dangerous. So you have to be really careful at those events. I'm not instead of a Reddit story, I'm going to tell this story. I'm meeting new people because of these kinds of events. You know, you don't have like the same people coming. Sometimes you have new workers and things like that, especially right now. Everyone's hiring new people. So I meet this girl and everyone knows her. And this isn't her name. I'm for privacy reasons. I'm going to call her Michelle. And people are like, oh, Michelle, you're back. You're back. She's an overnight manager at Walgreens. And I guess she used to work these events randomly chit-chatting you know trying to be polite at 6 a.m as best as you can I'm, I'm pretty silent at this point but what wakes me up is she says that she worked overnight and she's gonna stay the whole day so she got there she worked her overnight shift got there at 6 a.m and is gonna stay there until 8 p.m so I was like wow you like are really hustling hard and she's like yeah crazier thing too is I don't have a car and I walked here 
Guys, it is a 20 mile walk. This woman walked at three at like four in the morning, 20 miles in the dark in Colorado where Ted Bundy has killed to get here after her shift. I don't think I've midnight. walked 20 miles total in the last two weeks. <laughs> like if you added all my walking. She's telling this to everybody. And it was just a casual thing. She wasn't saying yeah, it walked, like, oh, I walked 20 miles. She was like, well, the light rail stopped. So I ended up having to get out and walk. And I was like, wait a minute, you walked here from like downtown Denver. And she's like, yeah, I looked at her and I was like, where do you live? And it turns out she lives like less than a mile and a half from me. So I was like, do me a favor, take my phone number. And tonight, I don't care. We'll figure it out you're getting a fucking ride home from me because I'll be damned if on the first night of fish, you think you're going to get into on a train. Like it's not going to happen. The trains are not like New York. Like no matter what event goes on, it's still okay. Events screw up all public transportation out here. So I was like, there's no way that this is going to work out for you. In like I took a bus in Philly after a concert and it was fucking bananas. Like you would, you would think that they had no idea. Like they've never driven public transportation after an event before. Later that night, she's thanking me profusely. And I'm like, girl, stop thanking me. You've literally worked almost 24 hours. You know, I don't always talk about the podcasts with people me I meet. Either. I know what can happen to a woman at 3.30 in the morning, 4 a.m. by themselves. You're a New Yorker. We know. And so I start talking about like the podcast and she goes, oh, well, I have a story for you. Turns out in 2019, she moved into what they call a garden apartment down here. It's really just the basement. I was about to say, I'm like, are they trying to like, like make a basement fancy? Really, it's a basement. She just moved in. So she's deciding while she's moving in, she's going to try the Marie Kondo method. So everything part of Marie Kondo, the first thing you do is everything. It doesn't make you you happy. You get rid of it. Well, the first thing you do is like the first step is literally put everything you own in the center of the room and you sort that way. So she had gone an overnight shift, had all this stuff stacked everywhere in her apartment and her boyfriend happened to be sleeping over. She doesn't live with him. We'll call him Dustin. Dustin doesn't live there, but he's, you know, staying with her that night, you know, and he decides it was really, really hot uh, summer night. And it was about one of those nights in Denver was like 100 degrees and they're living in a basement. Think think about like the humidity and the moisture and stuff like that. That's why I hate basement apartments. She had just worked 16 hours. She's exhausted. And she tells her boyfriend, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sleep. He decides Dustin decides he's going to go do laundry, which is in the basement. He just has to like kind of head off to the right. Trying to be nice. He left the door cracked because it was so hot. He wanted her to make sure that she would get some air. This was the fatal flaw because it turns out that. There was someone that used to live in her old apartment. So this is the old tenant. And we don't know if he was following her. We don't know if he just happened to walk into the building. It's strange that he would happen to walk in the building when it's the middle of the night. She wakes up and she feels pressure down there. She thinks it's she thinks it's Dustin being being a pervert. Like, I'm sleeping, asshole. Like, what are you doing? She wakes up to see this shadow figure with a ponytail and her boyfriend does not have a ponytail. He's hiding amongst the boxes that she has out, but she can still see him motioning around and moving around. Mind you, she she said she was so tired because she didn't couldn't function what was going on. So she kind of whispered, who are you? And he kind of used that as the opportunity to kind of get closer to her. She said something inside her in that moment said, scream, kid. And she said she never calls herself kid. So she doesn't know where that came from. And she let out this blood curdling scream. This led him to actually run out. She gets out of bed. All of this has happened in in literal seconds, but to her it felt like hours, she said. She's scrambling trying to find her phone because that's the first thing you want to do is call the police, right? She turns on her light and sees down where he was by the boxes and she sees this apron and she's like, I don't own this apron. What is this? She looks inside the apron and there is her phone. So the guy, I guess when she was sleeping, took her phone and put it in the apron knowing she was going to try to call for help. 
the first person she weirdly calls is her boyfriend Dustin who's down the hallway and she goes Dustin I'm not joking around because he's kind of a kidder and she's like Dustin no fucking joke do you own an apron and he goes what fucking apron no what are you talking about and she tells him what happens and he comes running down the hallway as she calls 911 this traumatic event happens to her and trying to process what's going on she goes to the DA Um, they showed up that night but she had to go back the next day for like a rape kit and all that stuff And as she's walking home, she sees a ponytail and she didn't get a good look at the person because remember, it was the middle of the night and the door was just cracked. Like the she she just knows the outline, but the outline looked familiar to her and something told her to take a picture of this person because it's on her block. She decides to start following this guy and he's kind of acknowledging she's there, but not really. He goes up to her building and she decides at this point, I'm just going to like basically confront him. So she goes up and she said she's no further than so I'm she's telling me the story. I'm on the driver's side. She's in the passenger seat. And she's like, this is how close we were. And he would not look me in the face. She's like, so I knew it was him. Something fucking told me it was him. So as he's walking away, she took a picture of him. That picture goes on Crime Stoppers. People from the Denver Zoo start calling and saying, that's the Denver Zoo groundskeeper. They decided to start looking into it. Instead of having to go talk to him, he comes into the police station and says he wants to, quote, clear his name. The DA starts asking him questions and he starts to fold. He starts making his own stories up and, you know, trying to make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it actually was. And she said the nail in the coffin was they said something was left that was red at the scene. Like, do you know what that was? And he goes, oh, yeah, it was an apron. So he gave himself away. What an idiot. He was basically a retrieve it because it was for work. So he needed it. And I've we've talked about this several times in this podcast, but unfortunately men don't think the way we do (laughs) they don't have to think the way we do but i think that the other important part of the story is to trust your instincts right because her instinct told her to scream and when she screamed he left and her instinct also said take that picture and the instinct also told her go confront the guy and while that maybe wouldn't work for other cases for some reason her gut told her to do something and all the stuff her guts her gut told her to do ended up working for her Because honestly, you also have to be an advocate for yourself when you're a woman. And I don't think they would have solved it so quickly if she didn't do any of that. And if you are curious, I did ask. She said it was exactly one year that day that he served his first year of seven years in prison. So he did get charged. So he gets seven years. Seven years is is a significant amount of time. He's going to get out at seven years and be able to live a life. And she's going to have this scarring for the rest of her life. It was a first time offense. Like he probably would have gotten more had he he never caught maybe because that doesn't sound like exactly what I said. This episode is dropping right after 9-11. And while this is not a 9-11 related case, oddly enough, when I started researching it, 9-11 comes up. Um, So it's kind of I had like a a few cases that I could have done and I picked this one because it was so close to 9-11. I know everyone's like used to us doing like weird cases that like sometimes don't make any sense. But this is the first time that I researched a case that was kind of so weird and confusing that even after writing it and reading it over and over again, I still did not understand what was going on. And Christy probably understands now why for the last three days I keep telling her I have to read my case over. And she probably thought I was just being my normal self, but there's a reason. It is because there's, I'm like, this just doesn't make any sense. And the truth is that parts of this case just don't make any sense. It is really weird. It is a missing persons case that took 16 and a half years to solve. But it's not like a typical missing persons case, and you'll see why. But it's crazy because, you know, in recent years, it has become like a not a phenomenon, but I think because of social media and stuff like that, it has become more widely known 
that there's a lot of true crime addicts out there. There always have been, because we all know this from back in Ted Bun- like Ted Bundy's days, like women that showed up at his freaking court cases to watch him. There have always been people that are kind of addicted to true crime. Now, while we are not the type of people that glamorize serial killers, they're terrible fucking people, we do love true crime and we like the elements of like what makes people do things. A lot of times people get a bad rap for being into true crime, but there are times where it is very beneficial. And this is a case that was basically solved by people like Christine, myself, and you guys listening to this podcast who found a case. It just gained traction, got a bunch of subreddits, and they ended up funding money to get DNA to solve what this was. But it's not what you think it is. It isn't solving a murder. So let's get into it. I love online sleuth episodes. These are always awesome. So I'm excited. This takes place in 2001 on September 14th, which, as we know, is three days after 9-11. What year? 2001. So it was three days after 9-11. Oh, literally three, 72 three hours Three days after, after 9-11, okay. where the world is experiencing this national security crisis, 3,000 people died in New York, everything's going on. There's a man who, a young man who checks into a motel called Lake Quinault Inn in Amanda Park, Washington. He checks in under the name of Lyle Stevick. He appeared to be like in his 20s. Everybody, if you were old enough at that time, knows that every single day after 9-11 was just weird in the way that it wasn't weird. So like, it's weird. I've read so many articles about this and everybody kept emphasizing how monotonous and like normal this day was after something like this happened. Um, and he just, this young guy checks in and it's kind of like routine. He comes in there, the clerk gives him a registration form. He writes something down on the registration form. He writes down his name, name Lyle Stevick, address 1019 South Progress Avenue, State Meridian, Idaho. So he come, he's, there, he's there from Idaho visiting Washington, checks into this like regular ass motel, nothing fancy. And it's like super cheap. It's like 50 bucks a night. And he just checks in there. According to the front desk clerk uh, that's known affectionately as Aunt Barbara, everybody calls her Aunt Barbara. How do people get nicknames like that? I don't know. Nobody ever wants to call me an aunt. Maybe because yeah. I'm not nice. I don't know. But so she said basically like everything was like super chill and normal, which again, in the days after 9-11, like, this kind of the day, it was just kind of like, this was a normal day. Nothing crazy happened today. So, he yeah, sh- I think outside of New York, not a lot had changed or outside of D.C. Yeah. Not a lot had changed in the rest of the world. People like, were for just kind of looking at New York like, oh, my God, it has happened. Yeah. And I think that they felt it in other places, too, because New York is like such an essential place for everybody. Even if you don't live here, that she was just like, this was such a normal day after everything mm-hmm. that happened. You just had this like normal guy. So he pays in cash. Um, The room for that night was $43.87. And she gives him room eight and he leaves and goes to his room. Very, like nothing special happened. There wasn't a, there wasn't even really a conversation. He just came, he checked in, he paid, he went to his room. But then... Like 60 minutes later, he comes back and now he's not like this nice guy checking to the hotel. He's flushed. He's agitated. He's disturbed. Like he's not being nice. And so she described, Aunt Barb describes that like, you know, this is kind of a weird encounter after you just had such like a pleasant encounter the first time. So she said that he wanted to switch his room. Like he was just super agitated and was like, I want to switch rooms. And so she's like, okay. And she kind of just gives him a key to room five. And she said that room five was pretty much exactly the same as room eight. Because I mean, in motels, you don't have it's not like a huge hotel where you have suites and you have two bed, like all this stuff. It If you're lucky enough, where you've never stayed in a motel, it's identical it's, rooms stacked on top same of each other. Exact room have this 
Or maybe there's there might be certain rooms that just might have like a cot in it in case you have more people. But for the most part, all the rooms are the same. So she says she gave him the key to room eight, which is basically the same as room five. Uh, room only, five. Uh, uh, room five, I'm sorry. That's almost the same as room eight, only it overlooks a parking lot. It's really not much different, but for some reason, Mr. Lyle Stavik liked that room and he nothing else happened after that. She just said that she remembers that even though it was a short interaction, it kind of creeped her out because this person kind of like completely changed in one hour. She handed the key. He went to his room, but he had basically paid for that night, but he ended up staying there for two extra nights. So she said, like, I guess he really liked the room because he slept there that night, the next night, the night after. So three days later, on September 17th, the housekeeper named Maricela, she arrived to clean his room, kind of like how she'd done every other day. The day before, though, Lyle had asked her not to clean the room, but she didn't like he didn't tell her, like, don't come back tomorrow. He just said, don't clean my room today. So she goes to clean the room and she's knocking on the door and there's no answer. And it's like 1130 in the morning. And at this point, he's supposed to be checking out and he's missed right. checkout because we all know that for some fucking god awful reason, they make checkout like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning, which to me will fucking never make sense. Please and they make you check in at like three or four. It's right. like, so it's I understand like, you have to clean the room, but it really doesn't take, these rooms are not fancy. You know, it doesn't take them more than 90, maybe two hours. If it's a really dirty room like, that someone destroys. It's like you make check in three o'clock and you make check out 11. And most of the time you have to find something to do with your, whoever you're going with, with your fucking suitcases or like, it's just so aggravating. And then like, God forbid you ask for a late checkout. Um, they usually try to charge you. And if you're like five minutes late, they charge you for a whole other day. But anyway, he's missed checkout. And so she's like knocking on his door and she's like, he's supposed to be out of here. So I guess she maybe assumed that maybe he had left or something. So she decides, okay, I'm just going to go into this room. Now, she also did it because normally you probably could just move on to the next room and clean it. But unfortunately, this motel where it was located it kind of was only busy during fishing season and fishing season had just ended in August. So there was really nobody there. And she didn't have, she only had one other room to clean that day and she had already cleaned it. So she was kind of like, all right, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to clean this room. And so she opens the door and she like finds a really odd scene. She finds Lyle kneeling in an alcove in the left-hand corner of the room his back to the door, arms at his sides, and his head was tilted back and his eyes were open and facing the ceiling. So at first she was like, what is going on? And she kind of thought maybe he was praying, but then like he was positioned weird. And then she had noticed that there were like towels everywhere. He had requested more towels like two nights before that. And so there was like three towels scattered all over the floor, but then other towels that were folded on top of the table. And she just kind of was like, "There's what is going on here? So she kind of panics. And then she calls Gabe, who is Aunt Barbara's nephew, who owns the motel. Why she called him instead of police, I'll never know. But you really don't know what you're going to do in this type of situation until you're in it. And I think she was probably just really scared. What if he wasn't dead? What if he overdosed? Like, I don't know. I would have called 911 maybe, but whatever. She called the owner. And he comes rushing into the room and walks in and sees the same thing. And he's kind of like, okay, let's figure out what's going on because she was afraid to like approach him. And so he like slowly starts crawling towards Lyle and he notices that his wrists were limp. His fingers were relaxed. 
his jeans were hanging off his waist and he just like, he wasn't moving. And as he gets closer and closer to the body, he sees that a leather belt was wrapped around his throat on one end and attached to the coat rack on the door on the other end. And Lyle's knees were off the ground and he wasn't breathing. And so basically he had hanged himself, but it was one of those where you're using your own body weight to hang yourself because he was, he was tall And there was only a four foot difference between the floor and the coat rack. So this was a very not pleasant death. Not that any is pleasant, but hanging yourself is one of the most excruciating ways to end your life. And he did it in an even more excruciating way where he couldn't even just hang there. He had to use his own body weight and probably, you know, it took a while and he felt everything while he, while it was happening. Now, Gabe starts to look around and he notices that on the nightstand there is a comment card with the words for the room written on it and he opens the envelope and it's eight crisp brand new $20 bills which basically was the amount of money he needed to cover his last two nights then he only paid for the first night and then he stayed two more nights so there was the money that paid for his other two nights in the hotel plus a generous tip because it was only $43 a night and there was eight $20 bills. So there was 160 bucks in there. I mean, uh, at first this sounds like a suicide and this is him feeling bad and leaving money for like the fact that someone's going to have to find his body. That's kind of what I'm thinking in my head right now. Because at first I was like, maybe it's autoerotic asphyxiation, but then you mentioned money and like leaving a note. It sounds like a suicide. Right. So at this point now, Gabe finally calls 911 Um, paramedics show up police show up and the one thing they noticed was that he was a little emaciated he was six foot two but he was only 140 pounds and then they start of course with their investigation but there was no the weird thing about it is when you're traveling there's certain things that you have certain documents you would always have your id driver's license bank card passport things like that but lyle there was no bank card no driver's license no passport There was nothing. There was nothing to identify himself. So then the police start asking, like, bus drivers, people around the area, like, have you ever seen this guy? Nobody had ever seen him before. Nobody had reported anybody missing that week or in the weeks after, honestly, but nobody had reported anybody missing. And so this kind of like, this is super strange. They start running his DNA, his dental information, his fingerprints through all types of databases with all crime scenes and all this other stuff no matches. They then looked up the address that he wrote on the registration slip because remember when he first checked in, he wrote an address. The address was 1019 South Progress Avenue in Meridian, Idaho. And when they looked up this address, it belonged to a Best Western that was more than 600 miles away in Idaho. So it wasn't a home address. So they start investigating. They go to that inn. They start talking to the manager. The manager worked there for six years, did not recognize Lyle Stevick from his photos. So they have never seen him before. So, so far, Lyle Stevick is not in any database, no phone directory. There's not in any search engine. Remember, the internet already exists by 2001. Right. He has no presence. He's not in an electoral role. He, like, he hasn't registered to vote. He's not in a census. He literally doesn't exist anywhere. The police detective, whose name was Lane Humans, um, he basically stated that he had worked on a lot of suicides and he had never had one that made sure that their bill was paid. I mean, maybe some have, but like he said, he never in his time in his career experienced Mm -hmm. someone who made sure to settle their bill. He found that weird. 
And he also stated that, you know, while investigating him, he's worked a lot of mysterious murders. He's worked a lot of suicides, but he said this one was different because it was so weird and bizarre. And he said that he obviously wasn't a local because if he was a local, somebody would have called about it already. Like somebody would have figured out that their family member like locally was missing. Like they would have reported him missing or they would have came to the hotel or they, they, someone would have said he didn't show up for work. Like somebody would have reported it already. So they kind of knew that he wasn't a local. So basically like he just, he had, he started taking pictures of the room because he's like, nobody knows who the hell this guy is. He has no identification. And some of the things they found in the room was like the bedspread was off the bed. It was hung over the window and the clothes hangers were on the floor by the chair. The light was on in the bathroom. The door was partially open. Just kind of things that you don't see in his experience. He did, doesn't see with other um, suicides. And he noticed that the pillows were stuck between the clothes hanging area and the wall on both sides. So he was like, what was he trying to do? Was he trying to like muffle sound maybe so that people couldn't hear him struggling when he right. did this? Um, because honestly, killing yourself like that, you would flail like your body would move around a lot. So he's like, was he trying to mask the sounds of him doing that? Like, what was he trying to do by putting the pillows in between the wall and where the clothes hung? Like, it seemed like he was maybe making a sound barrier. And the coat rack, like I said before, was only four feet off the ground. Lyle's legs and feet were in a perfect kneeling position. So he basically, it, it's not a, it's not a pleasant way to go the way that he did it. He, quote, he was quoted as saying, during suspicious hangings, there are always involuntary jerks and movements and internal fight for survival. And he's thinking, like, was this all a setup so nobody else would hear it? I mean, granted, we now know that he already told the housekeeper not to clean his room that day. And there was obviously a reason. Um, so now they start looking into his clothing and whatever's on his body. In his front pocket was a pen clipped to his jeans. And in his right rear pocket were eight $1 bills. And then in the nearby desk drawer, there was a new tube of toothpaste a toothbrush still in its packet, some loose change. And then on the nightstand, there was a rosy, what they, what they call the rosy red Gideon's Bible, which the in you know, every motel has a copy of the Bible in the room. And there was a bookmark pressed between pages 1050 and 1051. And the passage read, this he said, signifying what death he should die. So they were like, did he put that there? Like, did he purposely bookmark that? Because it was normally when you go into a motel or a hotel, the Bible is inside of the drawer. This was on the nightstand with that bookmark there. I'm so confused already. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> See? Told you. So now there's a small black trash can under the nightstand, which had a copy of the newspaper, the local newspaper from the day before, an empty plastic Pepsi cup, and then a crumpled piece of white paper. And so when they opened up that paper, it read suicide in like capital block letters. So when they found that, they started investigating it. But the handwriting on that scrap piece of paper looked different than the handwriting on the envelope and the registration slip. Hmm. So Interesting. they were like, okay, did he write out suicide in block letters like to see how it looked? Was he writing it like that because he wasn't sure how to spell it? And they're saying that the ha- the style of handwriting that he wrote in is one that you would normally see in like the medical profession from like a doctor. So like, obviously, like it wasn't very neat. Like, you know, there's certain characteristics of people in the medical field, the way they write. So they were like a normal human can't read a doctor's right. note. Like it's people get trained to read, to read doctor's, doctor's hand. And that's why notes are um, computerized now, honestly. 
So they start thinking, okay, like, who is this guy? Maybe he's a doctor or a surgeon, or he and they suggest they said that basically, even if he wasn't a doctor or surgeon, he had to make a decent living because he wasn't like raggedy. He was wearing Levi jeans. He was wearing black Timberland boots. He had like, he looked like he, he was taken care of his hair had just been trimmed. His nails were clean. Um, he had he paid in cash. He had crisp money in his back pocket, so obviously he wasn't like a, someone homeless that was just wandering right, around. Right, right. Uh-huh. He is someone that maybe came from maybe upper middle class, had a good job. So he's definitely he had no injury. But it's interesting that he would choose a forty forty dollar motel. Nobody would fucking look for him there. You know what I mean? Like it was this was this was a town that literally described in all three articles I read as the middle of nowhere. They're like, if you yeah. had a description of the middle of nowhere, this is Amanda Park. This is it, Washington. Right. But they said that the reason they also knew that he like didn't work manual labor is his hands. Like you can always tell when somebody works in manual labor because their hands. Um, he definitely took care of his appearance. He was clean. His clothing was clean. His hair had just been trimmed. His nails were trimmed. They said the only thing that was different about his appearance that didn't make sense was how thin he was. Because remember, he was emaciated. And they couldn't figure out why because he obviously had money. And he obviously took care of himself. So they couldn't figure it out. But if you think about somebody with a history of mental illness, that, that, that happens. You gain weight, you lose weight, like you don't really know. But they were trying to figure out who he was. So now they're like, why? They also, oh, they also had seen his clothing was hanging. He had like a genuine leather jacket. Like that, nobody has a genuine leather jacket that doesn't have some sort of money because they're not cheap. And they could tell from how his belt was that he was losing weight recently because you could tell that he kept using all the holes to tighten. Like this is the type of shit that they look at because they said that his jeans were designed for a third, like a a waist that was five inches bigger than his waist. So it's obvious that he had it and like he just kept using his belt. Like obviously he was losing weight, which could also, like I said, be a sign of mental illness. So now they're, 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 they're trying to do more investigation. They're like, okay, where are all his belongings? Where's his ID? Where's his passport? Where's his, all this stuff? They're like, did he discard it before he did this? Um, did he hurl it somewhere into the nearby lake? Because there is a lake. But they didn't search the lake because they apparently didn't have enough evidence to search there. So even if he had chucked his shit in there, they don't know. But they also said that like searching for something like a wallet in a lake is like searching for a needle in a haystack. And because the lake is very True. deep and very dark. And if, I'm sure by the time you found it, you probably wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. So they just kind of collected his fingerprints. They sent him over to the coroner to do an autopsy. And like they said, like they had no idea who he was, but they knew he wasn't local because nobody had called it in. But, you know, if obviously this case was bothering them because he was somebody, somebody's friend, somebody's son, somebody like he was a human. Yeah, so they're right. like, who the fuck is this guy? Someone has to be looking for him, which is what totally. I would always think to like somebody has to be looking for him. Not here. Maybe in Idaho, but someone's looking for him.
So now at this point, um, on Wednesday, September 19th, uh, the, the coroner in another town 50 miles south of where they were examined Lyle's body. His name was Dr. Daniel DeLove. He looked at the corpse and looked for all the stuff that you would see if there was any type of struggle or identifiers. He said that they were partially healed abrasions on his knuckles, which could have been from way before that, but that's kind of like weird. Like, was he punching something? He had an appendectomy scar, so that's something that, yeah, you know, he had he had his appendix taken out. He was circumcised, which is also important. But then he also kind of guessed his age was around twenty five, so he was young. Um, but the rest of his body is what they called in this article a blank canvas. He had no tattoos, no birthmarks, no tan lines, no visible identifiers. You know, they look for like Jeez. marks, nothing, yeah, nothing besides that appendectomy scar, nothing. This is just like the perfect John Doe, right? And then on top of everything. There was also nothing medically wrong with him, even though he was emaciated. They said that his internal organs were in good shape. His lungs were healthy. His fingernails were clean and well-kept. He wasn't a smoker. He took urine and blood samples. He was completely sober when he hanged himself. His teeth were in excellent condition. Um, They said that four had been removed, um, probably to make braces, which, as we all know, is very expensive. So obviously, he's someone who was taken care of. He had a fruit of the womb tea, Hanes underpants, and unsoiled Levi's. So again, not someone that's like not taking care of themselves. Um, So he basically, with the exception of him just being pretty underweight, there was nothing wrong with him. Because, you know, like if he had had some sort of medical disease, they could have maybe worked with that. There was nothing wrong with him. So he basically... He had black hair that was combed straight back and had recently been trimmed. He He had a little bit of stubble, which means he had probably recently shaved. He had a small mole on the left side of his chin. And the only distinguishing thing that came uh, that came about was that his earlobes were attached, meaning they weren't separated from his head. They were kind of attached. Um, but even with that, they couldn't even determine his ethnicity. They said they couldn't determine his ethnicity or nationality. He could have been Hispanic. He could have been Native American, Middle Eastern, Caucasian. It was very difficult to tell. So he was like racially ambiguous, like could not tell. And when they questioned, like, everyone, including Aunt Barb, about her brief interactions with Lyle, she said that she thought maybe he had a slight Canadian accent, but again, could not be sure. But just because she said that, they did, uh, they submitted his uh, his information to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But just like in the U.S., his fingerprints and DNA had, there was no match in their system. So nothing came up. Dr. DeLove finished his autopsy report, signed his name, and basically had to file him as a doe on his death certificate. He was buried in an unmarked grave. Um, at a cemetery about 12 aisles, uh, twelve miles away in Aberdeen. No funeral, no tombstone, no flowers, nothing. Then months pass by and then years pass by and the investigation goes completely cold. But then five years later, in 2006, his case starts to gain a little online traction um, because people like us started looking into it. And it all started with a 15-year-old true, cli- true crime sleuth named... Uh, Clan. Well, she was. She goes under the name Clan McCrimmon. She like she's fifteen. She was fifteen, so you couldn't release her name. But um, she basically was a huge true crime fan and very big on the internet. And she basically started a Reddit, and you know, Reddit started to subreddits, and this is kind of how it had gained traction. But she stated, "quote Something just pulled me into him." She hmm. said that the story appealed to her because it was sad. He died alone. And a lot of people connected with his case on that level. They just really bothered him that nobody knew who he was and that he died by himself. And they just thought it was really sad. And their hearts kind of went out to him. And they just, 
everybody who started talking about his case had like the same goal. They just kind of wanted to identify him. They wanted, you want to give a name. In April of 2006, this 15 year old, she goes on WebSleuth and she starts posting about the case. And then people started like offering help to like dig up clues and look through the case. Maybe. And then they started coming up with all these theories as to who he possibly was. And this is when shit starts to go crazy because, you know, people go pretty, pretty crazy with their with their theories. So people were like, maybe he's from one of the Native American tribes, but that didn't lead anywhere. Then others were digging into that address in Idaho, but it was just a little nothing came about it. Then people were like, maybe he had been in that area before, or maybe he was planning on being in that area and then changed his mind. Then someone was like, oh, he died after after 9-11. Maybe he lost a loved one. Maybe he was part of the attack. Wow. Trying to link a guy who committed suicide as a 9-11 attack from the whole other coast away. Like that is, people that is really reaching. People start coming up with these crazy things. And so of course, you know, this started on Web Sleuths, then it moves over to Reddit and you know, Reddit, Reddit gets crazy. Oh, Reddit goes deep. Users started requesting information under the Freedom of Information Act, and they started going over the case files, and then they crowdfunded an age progression uh, photo. They placed ads. Nothing. But then, like, these theories really started to go crazy. Like, one person seriously wrote that he could have been one of the hijackers, but then couldn't go through with it, so he went to fucking Washington and killed himself. That was one of the theories. Um, Another one suggested that he was a circus performer. And then so this goes on for years because this is like, a, like, literally, it takes like a decade for this to become solved. So they just, you know, you, you know, you have all these subreddits, you have all these communities, and people are looking into it, but like nothing's really happening. But then in 2016, someone from the Reddit community reached out to a nonprofit organization called the DNA Doe Project asking if they'd be willing to help with the case. And basically, this DNA Doe Project is a nonprofit dedicated to identifying John and Jane Doe's. Um, and so they basically, they, they try to identify unclean bodies using genealogy, like the same way that the, like from the ancestry databases, the same way they caught the golden state killer. So they figured they use that type of technology to try to identify unclaimed bodies. Right. So they actually replied that they would take on the case, but they needed the online community to come up with the money for the DNA sequencing, which was about $1,500. And they got that money in under 24 hours. So now they finally have this money in hand. The DNA Doe Project gets a sample of Lyle's DNA from the police. Um, They go through this third party. They run the DNA. And after sequencing the sample, they pull up results in an ancestry website called GED Match. They spent weeks going through possible results, trying to like look at the family tree and they actually found a match. And so they reach out to the family and the family confirmed that yes, they were missing someone all these years, they thought that he was maybe still alive somewhere. But after 17 years, they basically finally got Lyle Stevick's identity. He was no longer a, a, a John Doe. And then they actually, the community actually helped raise money for the funeral cost so that the family could have a proper funeral for him. But what happened was their only contact for the family was between law enforcement and the family actually declined the funds. Um, they were actually kind of weirded out that online was fixated with his death, but they also kind of wanted privacy and I can understand why. So we don't know. His- and that's interesting because so many people these days just would take that and be open to talking about it and be open to whatever, because 
you know, like after so many years, you would think like finally this case has been solved, but it doesn't seem like they did a to judge them. It doesn't seem like they did very much to try to find this that person. That is the reason because- I think they declined the funds, but that is also the reason that they have never released his name or their identity. Wait, so we still don't know we who don't know Lyle his, really no, is. That's why he's still called Lyle Stevick. We don't know his real name. And it's not because of the family. The police kind of told them not to release the name because of previous cases like this where maybe the family wasn't so diligent in looking for their family member. Where after the identity was released, the family was harassed and doxxed and all this other crap because people thought they weren't looking hard enough. Yeah, like you have a whole community of people trying to figure out who this guy is, but you as a family member never posted pictures of missing. Like if you had posted this picture of this person missing, seeking reward or please contact this person, this would have been solved years ago. So it's interesting. I'm going to put another perspective on it because that was my first reaction when I looked up this Mm -hmm. case. But I also have family members who have gone missing for years. And when they're missing, that means they're okay. And when they pop back in your life, it means something is wrong. There are at least three family members of mine that they could go missing for years and we probably wouldn't know they were missing. So you think it's possible that this Lyle person traveled a lot or just Maybe. took off a lot and they don't fi- they didn't think something was wrong? But I mean, I, 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 I mean, can 17 understand. years is kind of a long time. I had an uncle who disappeared for five years and then popped back up, but never longer than five. A decade, though? You don't look but for someone for like a decade years, plus? And they were just like, we thought he was alive somewhere. And so, but a decade plus. A de- Honestly, yeah, like you don't hear from plus. someone for 10 years. And these days, especially 10 years later, it's 2011. We have Facebook. We we went through the MySpace era. You know what I mean? Like uh, Instagram was rolling out. Like things were happening where you could find people. So you would think this would be I mean, the opportunity. I mean, a bunch of people who have never met solve this case over the internet (laughs) so obviously there was a way which also goes to show you how much police work did they really do that a fucking 15 year old started this that led into this being solved how much did the police really work to find these find this person at the end of the day it comes down to experience and that and like i honestly think those little towns even if they take a different person from another city those little towns always are the ones that get screwed the most because they're either dealing with local police who are not used to this level of intensity and intrigue and mystery or someone from the FBI or someone else flies out and they're not emotionally invested into the into finding this person or they're not psychologically invested into finding out who it is. It's not an obsession for them. It's just another person who decided to commit suicide. I think after a while, that's the problem with police. They become numb to the fact that this is something that should be solved. It also takes money, right? Like the only reason that they even got to do this is because they found a nonprofit willing to help identify this person's body. They had to raise money for an age progression photo and they had to raise money for DNA sequencing. At the end of the day, yes, it was a little bit easy for $1,500 to be raised throughout a community. But imagine if they were like, if I personally, there are times where I probably couldn't come up with $1,500 to fucking DNA sequence something. So like it goes to show that there's so many things that can affect the investigation. And now I can see why there's so many missing persons that don't ever get found because the family might not have the money for DNA sequencing or they might not have a DNA dough project that was willing to take on their case or, you know, things like that. Because a freaking teenager on a Reddit post, on a web sleuth post, not even Reddit, it wasn't even on Reddit yet, is what gained traction to eventually find it. And I I get why the family declined the money. I just kind of hope that they were grateful because I don't know what their reaction was other than declining the funds. Like, I hope they at least said thank you because absolutely they just, whether or not you knew that someone was missing for 17 years, 
you just found out that someone in your family has been dead for 17 years sitting in an unmarked grave. And I, I would hope that they're at least thankful for the people that put the effort in to find the identification of this person. Like, that's all. Like, just be grateful for that, you know? And I hope that they express that to this 15-year-old. I really do. Because this person didn't have to care. That person died before this before she was even born. Like, this this girl was 15 and just thought it was sad. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes the internet can be a great place. Cause it really can be. But yeah, I it's told you, awful, I, but it can be great. I told you this case made no that sense. That was fucking confusing. I didn't know I, where you were going I, with this. And that's what happened. Like, when I was writing it, I'm like, she's not, I'm like, nobody can tell where I'm going with this because it went from. It was hard for me to get anything in because I'm just like, I don't want to say something and then me be not wrong. Not even missing person from like unidentified person suicide. They're in 9-11. They were a hijacker. And I even thought for a second when you mentioned the room thing, I was like, was it like a a demon that forced him to kill himself and he got freaked out by that so room. Like, of, I thought you were going to go somewhere there. So like, who knows where you were going to go? It's funny because the woman who found him, Maricela, like, she still lights a candle for him. But there was even, like, someone who said that they stayed in that room and he, his ghost was in there still. Like, I'm telling you, I this page, what this case went up to 11 pages once I put all of the conspiracy theories as to who this guy was. I had to take some out because I'm like, yeah. I'm going to be on here for two hours, all for you to find out that it was he really did just commit suicide. But it was, I I went down a rat when I went I I went down the Reddit rabbit hole like I That's went crazy. down the rabbit hole. It was Nuts. very confusing. I felt like I was in Alice in Wonderland, and I'm like, what drugs did I just take? Nope, I'm sober. It was it was it was weird. It got very weird. Then that is called the Reddit experience. It is. So. It is the Reddit experience. But yeah. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? An unvaccinated woman's attempt to enjoy a Hawaii vacation unfettered by the state's 10-day quarantine mandate was thwarted by bad spelling. Folks, this is a huge problem we have these days. People have forgotten to spell. If you're going to scam something, make sure you Google the proper name. You know, that information is very easily available on the Internet. Chloe Mrozak, uh, age 24, was arrested Saturday at Daniel K. Inouye International Airport, I'm sure I said that wrong, in Honolulu, on the misdemeanor charge of suspicion of falsified vaccination documents. Her bail was set at $2,000. $2,000 to fake your shit by the federal government? It's, she got lucky because there's two girls in Canada who were caught with fake vac- vaccination cards and they got fined $17,000. Nothing. And she went on vacation, which means she exposed a bunch of people on the plane. So it's crazy that that was so low. When Morozak first arrived in, Ho- in Hawaii on August 23rd, the state's safe travels program administrator reported her COVID-19 vaccination card was possibly fraudulent. Morozak, an Illinois resident, was vaccinated in Delaware by two National Guard members identified as, quote, CPL Wolf and SS so Sergeant Monty. So Corporal Wolf and Sergeant Monty. Those sound like the biggest fake names you've ever heard. According to her vaccination card, lawandcrime.com reported, Hawaii authorities determined from officials in Delaware that there was no record of her being vaccinated. Uh, there was another issue with the cards. It was misspelled the Moderna vaccine as Moderna, M-A-D-R-N-A, Moderna, not Moderna, Moderna. 
despite it. And mind you guys, we have heard about Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson and Johnson for the last two years of our lives. That shows how little she's actually like researched this stuff. She can't even spell it properly. Like you really put no effort into it. Like the thing is that in order for you to fake a vax card, you also have to have the lot number, which you probably found because so many people posted there. So you're telling me you couldn't copy from somebody. Nope. But I'm, I'm going to say this one thing because I told this to Christy and it's actually very funny because as you guys know, I have horrendous luck in this life. My vaccination card actually has Pfizer spelled wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was by an official person. They spelled it wrong. I already have my third dose. I am vaccinated as fuck, guys. <laughs> but one of my doses is spelled wrong. So when this article came out, our friend sent it to me and she was like, you need to look into getting your card fixed because it would happen that like I would probably get accused of a fraudulent vaccination when I actually was vaccinated just because I happen to have a misspelled Fuck, I have Pfizer misspelled. And it's funny because I went on the same day as our friend and my sister. And theirs are spelled correctly. But yours isn't. But of course, mine yours is spelled isn't. incorrectly. And with my luck, I'm going to try to go on vacation eventually. And I'm going to get stopped. And they're going to think I faked my vax. I mean, granted, I really was vaccinated. So I have proof. But still. But this would happen yeah. to me. This person's this lying about it. You're telling the truth about it. And you would get I'm in trouble. I'm telling the truth <laughs> about it. But it is my luck. that, like, That's why when everyone's like, how stupid do you have to be to misspell it? I'm going to be like, um... Hi, I have a misspelled A guy who gave it to me misspelled fake. it. <laughs> Despite initial suspicions, Morozak left the airport. So they still let her leave. Officials later couldn't find a reservation at the hotel where she said she would be staying and she didn't return uh, travel well, information. Well, guess what? She's a liar. So she probably lied about the hotel. Special Agent William Lau of the State Attorney General Office said he tracked down Morozak by searching through social media, of course. See, social media, Always. it's either great or it's- terrible and found a Facebook account in which she described herself as a model. Sure, she's a model. photo gallery shows Mirazik with a distinctive tattoo on her left hip. So obviously she's even going to be able to be identified through her markings. Duh. Law enforcers spotted a woman with a tattoo at the Southwest Airlines counter at Honolulu Airport on Saturday and, att- and arrested Mirazik as, as she attempted to fly home after her first arrest. Authorities said Morozak told an officer she was vaccinated by her own doctor and paid for the shots. COVID vaccinations are free. Morozak was traveling with another woman who was not arrested, authorities said. So, yeah, her friend didn't get in trouble because I'm sure she probably didn't lie. So, but yeah. So, guys, if you're going to lie, make sure you spell it correctly. That's the that's the moral of the story. Were you just talking about how great the Internet is? Google it. (laughs) Like you could have even you could have just gone the easy route and put J and J and only had one dose and totally made right. your life easier. But you decided Maderna. to write Moderna, Maderna wrong twice. Like how dumb do you have to be? At least my shit's only spelled wrong. And once. not just that. Also, my vaccine card, because a different person did give me the shot, the second dose. It wasn't the same name. So it was smart that she attempted that. But like Monty, she wasn't smart enough to like, come on. Dude, you could have literally just looked at one of your friends and been like, cool, Smith. Sandra Monty's going to be mad when he hears his name in that. But anyway. I just can't. So we've just learned that the internet is a very strange place today. It's a help and a hindrance all at once. Well, this episode, it helped a lot. It helped it, it helped solve a case and, and it helped find an, a liar. And it also helped my coworker find the identification of her attacker. So again, up and downs. The internet can be great. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.